Hey, Scott Walker here on You Can't Recall Courage. Thanks for joining us this week. Last week, I was actually on the road. I was over in Idaho working on the balanced budget amendment. A lot of great people out there, a lot of great enthusiasm, but we're glad you're with us this week. Uh, later today, if you get a chance, tune in on News Talk 1130 WISN. That's AM 1130 from 3 till 6 p.m. this afternoon. That's Central Time, 3 to 6. I'll be filling in for Mark Belling on News Talk 1130 WISN. And uh, we appreciate you joining us again on You Can't Recall Courage. Boy, a lot of great things happening. I, I wrote about this today in the Washington uh, Times in my weekly column as well, which you can get online. In fact, all of this, you can go to our our uh, Twitter feed at Scott Walker. Or follow us on Facebook at Scott K Walker. I uh, I love posting these things, but it just amazes me um, the spectacle uh, and, and just the discussion about two of the four members of the squad. Of course, U.S. Representatives Omar and Talib from uh, Minnesota and Michigan, respectively, part of the increasingly socialist Democrat Party in America. But they were, of course, squawking over the last week and a lot of attention into the, the, uh, the fact that the two of them were denied access into the state of Israel. Well, no shock. Uh, there's actually a law in the books in Israel over the last few years that allows uh, them, uh, the prime minister in this case, Netanyahu, to block uh, the government, to block people who are supporters of the BDS movement. I mean, it's, it's those who want to dismantle uh, the state of Israel, the boycott, divestment, sanctions, moving out there. So these two are vocal critics. I, I think all along they knew they were going to be denied, and they didn't really plan on going there. Uh, in fact, uh, Representative Tlaib then made the impassioned plea to try and, and get more sympathy on her side that she had to see her aging grandmother, and Israel gave her a temporary reprieve and allowed her to come in and see her grandmother, and of course she didn't do it, which leads to, uh, really begs the question, uh, was they ever planning to go in the first place? And if they were, uh, one of the big things, and even many of you listening, some of you may know this, others may not know, because it was completely left out of most stories out there, but the group the group that was funding the, uh, the trip that they were planning on going on um, is a group that's really pretty bad. Um, in fact, the, the prime minister talked about this particular organization not only being an avid supporter of BDS, as I mentioned, boycott, divestment, and sanction movement, but they're among, uh, among whose members of this group are those who expressed support for terrorism against Israel. In fact, if you look at some of their statements or some attributed to their members, they're attempting to, they've supported terrorism uh, against Israeli citizens, innocent civilians, children, uh, that's really violence against the citizens of, of Israel. And so no matter what your opinion on that, I, I, I just can't believe that any lawmaker, regardless of party, would be for that. Particularly when you, I just saw Kevin McCarthy the, or earlier this week. Uh, I was speaking on redistricting, which I'll touch on in a minute as well, but gathering he had. And uh, he had just come back, as a number of other members uh, from Congress, a bipartisan delegation going to Israel uh, to look at things. And if these two were serious about it, they just would have gone on this. Uh, again, it wasn't restricted to one part or the other. Uh, members could go. They could see what's going on. They, it, But this is just a big stunt, and it's a big distraction to try and draw away from really the quite radical positions they have on just about anything, but particularly when it comes to Israel. Israel is the, in fact, I wrote it down here. You know, Israel is the, uh, the only democracy in the Middle East. That's according to the Democracy Index. 
fact, a lot of people don't know that the legislative body, the National Legislature of Israel, the Knesset, the Knesset has had uh, elected members, both Jewish and Arab members of the Knesset since the first elections in 1949. Uh, secondly, I think it's really important to know that Israel protects freedom of religion. I, I was just there in June. In fact, I remember standing out looking out over the old city and you could see the Dome of the Rock. You could see, uh, of course, the side of the, the Western Wall. You could see off in the distance. Uh, some of the sites to me that are particularly important as, as a Christian, uh, Calvary and the Stations of the Cross and that. And you could also look out not only at the Dome of the Rock, but at the mosque, which is the, the third holiest site in all of Islam. All that's right there. It's all open to the public. Uh, and so you've got, in Israel, you've got synagogues for sure, but you've got mosques and you've got Christian churches of various denominations. You, you, you don't see this anywhere else throughout the Arab world. And of course, uh, you know, the, the most amazing thing is this nonsense about Omar saying that, uh, that in fact, I went back and looked at this, it's pulling it up here, the, the, saying that this somehow uh, was, uh, what was her quote? Trump's Muslim ban is what Israel is implementing. Couldn't be further from the truth. First, there is no such thing as a Muslim ban in America. The ban, it's a travel ban on individuals from certain countries that are a threat to the United States. You remember the third version, which is what we're living in right now, of the president's executive action on this. The U.S. Supreme Court upheld it. No less than the Chief Justice, John Roberts, wrote the majority opinion, and he upheld the, the latest travel ban. In fact, he mentioned in the language that the law allows and gives the president broad authority to suspend the entry of non-citizens into the country. And, and that was the authority given to him to issue this proclamation. Now, you know, the president, it's funny because the media, even in covering this latest uh, story with the two trying to get in, continues to call and, and reference this Muslim ban. It's not. At the time when the chief justice wrote the majority opinion, pointed out that five of the seven countries happen to have Muslim majorities, but that fact alone does not support an inference of religious hostility. Why? Because the countries involved only represent about 8% of the global Muslim population. It just shows how ridiculous. In fact, the government attorneys in court before the Supreme Court made their decision pointed out that if this was a Muslim ban, it would be one of the most ridiculous ones ever uh, dreamed of because it only affects a small fraction of all the Muslims world. Now, what it is is, you know, in prior administrations and even those in Congress, but Obama and others had talked about certain countries that were not, they were identified as countries that were not cooperating with the United States about uh, providing information about the people coming from their countries into the United States in certain countries that, that had individuals who were a threat risk to the United States. So this is really ultimately uh, about national security, about protecting uh, American citizens and, and residents here in the United States. And, and the media just buys into all this nonsense. And they forget that Omar was the one, I mean, again, she tries to cover up back in March. She said, well, you know, 9-11, the reaction after that was 9-11 was something that some people did, to, uh, some something to some people. No, tell it like it is. You had radical, uh, radical jihadists who were attempting to take out thousands of innocent American citizens. It was a targeted hit, and it's one that we unfortunately see variations of it, uh, certainly directed at Israel, but in other parts of the world today. So that, that's just a little bit of what we're talking about. Now, uh, hold on for a second. We'll come right back on You Can't Recall Courage. I'm Scott Walker. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, Scott Walker back here. You know, a couple other quick things. And again, if you want to hear 
more of this. I'm going to be on for three af- three hours, I should say, this afternoon on News Talk 1130 WSN. That's in Milwaukee, but you can pick it up online as well. It's AM 1130. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll put the links up on our social media at uh, Scott Walker on Twitter, uh, Facebook. I'm at Scott K. Walker. We'll give you all the details here. But I mentioned I was with uh, Kevin McCarthy earlier this week. Man, boy, what a great guy. Both good on policy, good on politics. Um, he'll be an exciting new speaker and, and someone, I think, assuming the president gets reelected, will keep the United States Senate, which is going to be tough. I mean, you had a tough race in Colorado now with Hickenlooper running, although I think Cory Gardner's done a good job as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is going to be a tough year, which is why here in Wisconsin and across the nation and all these battleground states and uh, in key house and Senate races, uh, people can't take anything for granted. And we saw that in 2018. A lot of folks sat on their hands, maybe turned out the vote, but didn't do, uh, weren't as active in talking to friends and family, neighbors and coworkers, those you go to worship with. That's just so critically important. In Wisconsin, we had everything in the kitchen sink thrown at us back in the 2012 recall election. It took that kind of turnout, that kind of focus and determination from a lot of folks who are right of center. And uh, unfortunately, the left is heavily motivated. We saw it in 2018. We can turn that around. In Wisconsin, we won a critical, just by just by a hair, but won a critical race for the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So that does give us some optimism, but that was still at a much lower turnout than we're going to see in next year's presidential election. But along the way, one of the things I, I talked about when I was with Kevin McCarthy and some of our, our mutual friends was redistricting. You know, Eric Holder is running around the nation. Uh, uh, Carl Rove last week wrote a great piece in the Wall Street Journal about this, but Carl Rove's running around the nation. He was most recently in New Hampshire where he got the legislature to pass a law creating one of these bogus commissions uh, under the pretense of being uh, fair and ending gerrymandering. Um, John, uh, uh, in that case, it went to the governor's office, and Chris Sununu, who's been governor there for the last several years, really a fabulous guy, great reformer, tax cutter, putting more money back in the hands of the people of New Hampshire. He stood up and even under really rather substantial pressure, uh, vetoed the measure, citing the Constitution. You know, he takes an oath, like any of us who've been in office, you take an oath to uphold uh, the duties of your office, but as part of that, the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of our respective states. And in his case, in New Hampshire's uh, state constitution made it very clear that for both legislative districts and for in New Hampshire, they actually have statewide elected what's called an executive committee. And it was very clear in their constitution that they're the, that the legislature is required to draw the boundaries for those districts. Um, and he takes that oath seriously, the oath to uphold the Constitution. So he vetoed this measure, got kind of beat up about it. I, I wrote a, a, uh, a column in the Concord uh, newspaper kind of talking about this recently as well, where, you know, I give credit. A lot of people um, take the oath and don't really fully, <coughs> excuse me, don't really fully appreciate uh, exactly uh, what that means to uphold that. He did just that. And in any state, but particularly New Hampshire, I mean, for New Hampshire's got over 400 members in the state, uh, that state house, I believe it's 24 members of the state senate, but that's because they come from a tradition of wanting representation close to the people, directly linked and accountable to the people uh, who elect these office holders. And so uh, to punt these decisions on the legislative and state executive council boundaries, to put them in the hands of an unelected bureaucratic uh, entity as opposed to uh, elected individuals who are accountable 
and uh, ultimately accountable in elections uh, to the people of New Hampshire was exactly the right thing to do. But what I love it is, is it, Holder, whether it's in New Hampshire or in a number of the, Michigan, we're involved in the lawsuit with him right now, a number of these key states, Eric Holder gives this ridiculous, in fact, actually, if you go onto his website for his group, it actually has in the link, uh, it, it talks right at the top about ending what he calls Republican gerrymandering. That's, that's their mantra. It's almost like a religion. You hear it all across the country as, as if the only reason that Republicans are in office, particularly after the 2010 elections, is because of gerrymandering. Not the fact that our reforms actually work. More people are working in Wisconsin and many other states than ever before. In our state, we cut taxes by over $8 billion. Uh, we put more money into schools, historic, actual dollar investments. Our schools continue to be some of the best in the nation. We froze tuition, did all these good things. And you saw it with Republicans all across the country doing good things like this. But, but they can't come to terms with the idea that maybe voters support people who, who do what they say they're going to do, and then it works. And so they bring this just mind-boggling nonsense up about, uh, about gerrymandering. And what I love is one of the things we pointed out in New Hampshire was, so while Holder says this, and he says he's a, you know fighting gerrymandering, he's for fair maps, and the media, many outlets drop, uh, just take it uh, hook, line, and sinker along the way. If you go back in the National Republican Redistricting Trust, that's an organization I'm proud to do some work with because we believe if you, if you draw clear, concise, and constitutionally sound boundaries for state, legislative, and congressional districts, if Republicans have truly fair maps in that regard, uh, we'll win because our reforms work. But, but for all this hype from Eric Holder, the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, that's Holder's group that Obama's raising money for, uh, on their IRS form, it's called the Form 990, uh, when they filed this back in 2017, it, the form actually says, okay, um, briefly describe the organization's mission. Now get this. You won't pick this up in most media outlets. You won't read this in most papers. You certainly won't get this on the nightly network news. But it says, briefly describe the organization's mission. This is it. Favorably position Democrats for the redistricting process. So when Eric Holder talks about ending gerrymandering, about fair maps, it's just a bold-faced lie. On the form required to be filed by the Internal Revenue Service, we see what it's all about. It's about putting Democrats back in power. And that's why we got to push back. So this is part of what's going on out there. And it's maybe not sexy, but it's one of those things where I, I've said before that when I was in high school, I used to run track. I'd run about a two-minute, uh, half mile. That's two times around the track. And uh, I, I'd love to compete with folks. But if I started one lap behind the rest of the runners, there was no way, no matter how in shape I was, no matter how pumped up I was that day, no matter what kind of a day it was, if I started a lap behind everybody else on a two-lap race, there was no way I could win that race. And that's what this is all about. The work we're doing with the National Republican Redistricting Trust is just say, hey, we want clean, clear, concise, constitutionally sound uh, boundaries for state, legislative, and congressional districts across America. And if we do that, we can compete. We got great candidates. I just saw a bunch of candidates for the House the other day from all over America. Really exciting. Some dynamic women, some wonderful folks who come from uh, some ethnic uh, minority. In fact, I met a woman from uh, California who might be the first Korean American uh, woman to be elected to Congress. She'd be a Republican. Pretty exciting stuff. Came pretty close to last time. Give us constitutionally sound, fair, concise, clear districts out there, and we can win. Republicans can win. 
So that's part of what's going on along the way, too. You know, a couple other things that came up. I had a little bit of fun the other day on the lighter side of things. When I was tweeting, again, at Scott Walker, I, I, I get a kick out of whether it's um, Bernie Sanders, Liz Warren, many of the others kind of copy and replicate this. They, they try to talk about all this free stuff, you know, almost as a way of buying off votes. And so I said, you know what? We're for free stuff. That's right. We're, we're actually for free stuff. We're for things like free speech, free press, free assembly, free enterprise, free practice of religion. Most importantly, we're for freedom. The other side, when it comes right down to it, that's the problem with socialism. They promise all these things, but at the end it doesn't materialize. Prosperity uh, is not what comes about. It's ultimately poverty. Power to the people ends up being power to the few. It's the difference between freedom and government. If you give your freedoms up with these broken, you know, return for these broken promises, the power just flows to the government. It's freedom that ultimately matters, and uh, that's what we're going to continue to fight for. A couple other quick things. You know, I mentioned Kevin McCarthy. The other day I retweeted something. He, he had a tweet up where he pointed out, he said this. Uh, it's at GOP leader. He said, I want to make it abundantly clear that despite what Democrats, the media, or, or abortion advocates say, this is not a debate about limiting access to abortion for women. It's about protecting the life of babies who are already born. Now, this is about a piece of legislation. I talked about it before in the Senate as well. You've got uh, the good uh, senator from Nebraska who's been pushing this in, in large part, as we did in Wisconsin, reaction to the horrific description given by Virginia Governor North Routham, who, who talked about a child being born, set aside, being kept comfortable, and, and then somehow the family and the medical uh, providers would decide what they were going to do with that child. Well, I said this in reaction to Kevin McCarthy's tweet. I said, how can anyone be against this? He was advocating for this bill. How can anyone be against this? Democrats now support abortion even after death. Or excuse me, even after birth. Getting ahead of the punchline here. Democrats now support abortion even after birth. Horrific. And then I said to Kevin McCarthy, thanks for standing up for life. What's interesting about that is so... After that went up on Twitter, got a great response, not only a bunch of likes, but a lot of commentary because uh, the people who don't agree with us on this are pretty impassioned, and then people in return respond to that. And I, I think overwhelmingly, regardless of party, uh, people think that not just late term, but in this case, um, you know, some people call it live birth abortion. Some people call it a fantasy. I said it's just, it's just murder. Uh, we saw a case, a horrific case, a couple of weeks ago of a couple in California who brought their newborn child back and strangled the baby not long after coming home from the hospital. And I said, that's horrific. It's just chilling. It just makes you sick. But how is that any different from what Northam talked about? The only, the only difference being a couple hours. So on this tweet I put out, I, I got a number of warnings out there. People who said, uh, or warnings from Twitter saying that the complaints had been filed. Uh, apparently I must have triggered someone along the way. To me, what I find amazing is that uh, ending the life of a newborn child after it's been born. I mean, at any point, I still think, you know, particularly when you've got a beating heart, the lack of a beating heart typically is what you define as death. Uh, when a heart's beating, that should be a life. But, but not only uh, throughout the labor, I mean, not only throughout the pregnancy, but now after the child's been actually delivered. Um, to me, I don't know how that's any different. So I, I point out that while I got reports from Twitter, now they didn't cut me off, but they gave me, e emailed me uh, numerous times with warnings that people had 
had uh, filed complaints against us. Clearly, we triggered some people along the way, but I just think the idea that a child who's already been born could be could be killed, that should trigger people, not, not my pointing it out in the first place. So that's all going on. You know, the other interesting thing, we're going to talk some more about it again this afternoon from 3 to 6 p.m. Uh, Central Time on Newstalk 1130 WSN. We were talking this week, a new report by the Institute of Performing Government, talking about ways not only in Wisconsin but across the country uh, to rein in taxes, to put the taxpayers in charge, kind of things we did with with local governments and school districts uh, while we made historic investments, particularly in our schools, to make sure that we also put in place levy controls so that property taxes were lower when we done after eight years than when we started, doing more things to reduce the number of brackets, to lower the rates, to get rid of loopholes, all things that we did successfully in Wisconsin and can be done across the nation. I, I think the, the more we do, both at the state level and continue to do, the tax cuts have been a great advantage. Uh, even though most people don't know it, the tax cuts that Donald Trump signed um, have benefited more than 80% of the middle class, a broad cross-section of America. The few people complaining are actually a lot of the folks in places like New York City who are very well-to-do but don't have the same loopholes and deductions that they had before. But for the rest of us, it's been a good deal. And unfortunately, because most people don't see paid stubs anymore, we don't get a paycheck, it's electronically deposited. And because withholding was actually changed so that all throughout the year, more of that money went to our pockets. It wasn't taken out of our paycheck. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't buy it. They, they don't think they, they actually saw a tax reduction. But go back, whether you do your taxes yourself or you have an account or CPA or somebody who doesn't, talk to them about how much money the tax cuts have saved you and your family. Really important going forward. The last thing to talk about money is this latest report from the Congressional Budget Office just came out the other day. Uh, it's brought about even bigger concerns than we had before. I've noted uh, when I talked about the debt, you know, the debt, the U.S. debt, the federal debt, the, our nation's debt, uh, when I was born was just a few hundred million dollars. My, my share of it was about uh, $1,600. Uh, today it is over $22 trillion, and uh, it's well on its way to being as high as $30 trillion. In fact, if you use the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, commonly referred to as CBO, projections over the next five, less than five and a half years, by 2025, 2025 sounds like a short time from now, but it's, I mean, a long time from now, but it's really just less than five and a half years. You use the projections, federal government continues to borrow more than a trillion dollars a year, combined with interest rates by 2025 going up to 3.7%, which is still well below the 50-year average, by 2025, the debt will be $30 trillion. And get this, interest on the national debt will exceed $1 trillion. When Ronald Reagan first raised this issue in 1981, when he was fighting for a balanced budget amendment, the entire U.S. debt was $1 trillion. By 2025, these projections are right, the interest on the debt will be that much, and you're looking at a quarter of all the revenues just going to pay off uh, that interest. So to me, it's kind of put in real terms. Uh, you look ahead, so revenues to the federal government is about $4.6 trillion. Uh, you've got this incredible debt hanging out there. That would be like, say, someone making $46,000 a year and having a debt, carrying debt of over three hundred thousand dollars 
which would be bad enough because the interest payments alone would be over $10,000 out of that $46,000 payment or $46,000 wages, uh, that some household income that someone brings in. But the crazy part, and this is where the CBO report uh, the other day was so critical, it's, it's enough to have to pay that down. But if you had that kind of debt, any reasonable advisor would say, okay, first thing you do is you got to stop spending more than you're bringing in. Instead, now they're looking at deficits, not just debts, deficits of a trillion dollars. So they continue to, at the federal level, spend more and more and more than they're bringing in, combined with the debt that continues to grow. We know where this is heading. And I had someone once say to me, it's generational robbery, it's generational theft. But it's not even like we're doing it from a generation far removed from today. This is something that's right around the corner. That's why we're fighting so hard for a balanced budget amendment. It's, it's just not going to happen in Washington. They tried sequestration in the past. They, they tried years ago. I remember Grand Rudman Hollings. Some of that stuff worked for a while. But ultimately, a future Congress doesn't have to listen to anything the last Congress did. The only way to solve this is through a balanced budget amendment. You know, all but one states have some sort of a balanced budget amendment. It's not the only reason, but it's a big part of the reason why the states don't have the kind of troubles. Even some of the worst states still don't have the kind of troubles the federal government does. We have to do it. It's not going to happen in Washington. The only way, that, there's only two ways to amend the Constitution to begin with. One is through a two-thirds vote of the House and the Senate. This vote, this issue has been taken up again and again and again, and they don't get to two-thirds. And this is something where it's a bipartisan problem in a very bad sense, in that one party may be more responsible than the other, but neither has been able to permanently resolve this. So the other option our founders gave us, and for those who are worried about the Constitution, remember, the founders laid this out. They didn't pick which way to do it. They said, here are the two options, two-thirds vote of the Congress or two-thirds of the states can vote <clears throat> pass resolutions, which they've done. We're up to 28 of the 34 required states passing uh, resolutions uh, applying for a convention under Article 5. And I get that people don't want to see this be a runaway. It's not. Uh, no less than Ed Meese, Ronald Reagan's attorney general, had a report issued back from the Department of Justice when Ronald Reagan was pushing us back in the 80s that very clearly spells out you could have a convention under Article 5 that's limited to one subject. That would be this, the balanced budget amendment. You can keep it focused there. And then you ultimately still have to send it to the states to get three-quarters of the states. That would be 38 of the 50 states to vote to ratify before it becomes a part of the U.S. Constitution. In Idaho last week, I was talking to someone who had very real legitimate concerns about opening up the Constitution, not just under Article 5, but just in general. And uh, he said the counterbalance, why he was interested in talking to us about this, is uh, in his view, and this is the increasing view of many former elected officials, and but increasingly of military leaders, of admirals, and we have a, actually a very distinguished admiral on our board with the Balanced Budget Amendment campaign, but of admirals and generals and others who realize that the greatest threat even to national security long term is the insolvency of America. And that isn't light years away. That isn't a generation or two away. It's right around the corner. And so we've got to act. We've got six more states to go. If you live in or have people you know in states like Idaho and Montana, South Carolina, Minnesota, Kentucky, and uh, Virginia, those are very realistic opportunities for us over the next two years. 
uh, to bring this be uh, before the state legislative bodies and to finally get going on what I think is just common sense. I, I got to believe every one of you listening has to balance your own budget at home. If you own a small business or a family farm, you got to do it. In state government, we had a constitutional requirement to do it. And whether it's the constitutional laws, states all across America and schools and towns and villages are doing it over and over again. Why our federal government can't do it? It's pretty simple. They're not required to. And until we pass a constitutional amendment and put that a balanced budget requirement in our U.S. Constitution, it's just not going to happen. It's too much is at risk. So we're going to continue to keep fighting for things like this. These are things that President Reagan fought for. These are things I think our founders never dreamed would be needed, but they gave us the tools to do that through Article 5 of the Constitution to amend it for things that, that were unforeseen. Uh, in this case, I think they were all frugal enough. They, they didn't anticipate uh, the federal government would ever grow to this size and this irresponsible along the way, but it has. And so this is going to be critically important. Anyway, uh, listen in this afternoon from 3 to 6 p.m. Central Time on AM 1130, Newstalk 1130WISN. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you uh, next Friday, 9 a.m. for You Can't Recall Courage. I'm Scott Walker signing off. Until we talk next time, keep fighting for freedom.